First Timothy chapter one, verse 18, Paul writing to Timothy says, this charge I commit to you, son, Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Once again, Paul charges Timothy to fight the good fight in verse 18, to keep the faith in verse 19, to maintain a clear conscience at the end of verse 19. Paul gives an example of men who have either abandoned the faith or perverted their conscience or both in verses 19 and 20. When Paul charges Timothy to fight the good fight, I can't help but think that many of you are also in a fight. For some, it's a fight with your husband or your wife or your children. It's a fight with the government or it's a fight with the IRS. For, for some of you, you're in a fight for your health or your sanity. You feel like you are involved in a battle. But whatever it is that God has called you to do, you can say with confidence, I am called to fight the good fight of faith, to keep the faith, to live my life with a clear conscience before God and my fellow man. Wisdom in warfare means we know our enemy and our resources that are in Christ Jesus. And wisdom and warfare are not always two words that come together in the same sentence. Elsewhere, Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We understand that there's all kinds of battles that have to be waged. And so... We begin with the minister's charge. Prepare for war. Look what he says to Timothy. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. What was Paul's charge? Remember in verse 3, if you look right at the beginning, it says, As I urged you when you went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. He's given him a charge to teach no other doctrine, to avoid mythical legends, to Stay away from extra-biblical revelations, Gnostic teachings in verse 4, false doctrine that, that divides Beware of false teachers who pervert sound and healthy doctrine in verse 10. See what it says for, for fornicators, sodomites, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, that if there's any other thing that is contrary to healthy doctrine, the word sound here is the Greek word hygienia, which means healthy, pure, clean. It's the opposite of dark and sick. So Paul in a nutshell, charges Timothy, 
Teach sound doctrine, verses 1 through 11. Preach the glorious gospel in verses 12 through 17. Defend the faith in verses 18 through 20. We've already talked a little bit about that word charge. Paragelion. It's a Greek word which meant to command or a commandment. It's used that way in verse 3, verse 5, verse 18, chapter 4, verse 11, chapter 5, verse 7, chapter 6, verse 13. Why is Paul using this word over and over and over again? It's a military term, which in the ancient world was a reference to a command that was passed down the line. Recently, I saw the movie Risen. I don't know if any of you have seen it. It's, it's interesting, but there's a scene in the movie where the Romans are fighting. And they, in a particular moment, he gives a command. He says, pass it down the line. Pass it down the line. Pass it down the line. That's exactly what this word means. The ministry is serious business. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, Paul will say, and the things that you have heard of me among many witnesses, commit the same thing to faithful men who shall be able to teach others as well. Warren Wiersbe used to say that the Christian life isn't a playground, but a battleground. And that spiritual gifts are not Toys that children play with, but tools and weapons which Christians use to fight with. And some of you might be uncomfortable with that metaphor of conflict, of war, of battle. You may be a person who's weary of the fight, but Timothy's been commissioned as an officer in the Lord's army. And so when he says, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, we have every reason to believe that those prophecies were things that were spoken by prophets over Timothy as he was preparing for ministry. I'm going to suggest to you that whatever these prophecies were, I suspect that this was Timothy's ordination to the ministry. Again, prophecies suggest prophets who speak in a local church, who are di directed by the Holy Spirit, calling Timothy for a specific task, for a special service. It's not unusual when we gather and when we pray that God will speak. You know, I often at baptisms as I'm praying over people, as I'm, as I'm praying, I'm asking God to give me insight or wisdom or encouragement to give some sort of insight into the gifts and callings that have been placed on your life to stir up those gifts so that you will manifest them in a way that's honoring to God and edifying to the body. According to John MacArthur, quote, the prophecy specifically and supernaturally called Timothy into God's service, unquote. Remember what he already said about himself. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, at the opening of the letter. He isn't some sort of self-directed teacher. He doesn't just wake up one morning and say, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to be a pastor. I think I'm going to be in the ministry. I think I'm going to write one-third of the New Testament. That's not what happened. 
Paul is called and directed, commissioned, if you will. And the same is true of Timothy. Godly men have recognized a gift and a calling on his life. And he has authenticated that calling in the very real world in which he lives. When God calls you, he equips you. God doesn't always call the qualified, but he qualifies the called. If God has called you into ministry, if God is calling you, you might be thinking, well, I don't have the proper education, or I don't have the proper this, or I don't have the proper that, or I don't have the proper background. Guess what? God is able to do amazing things in your life so that he can use you in remarkable ways. We might think of this as Timothy's consecration. This is a concept that includes both calling and yielding. It's one thing for God to call you, and it's another thing for you to accept the call and submit to the call. Some of you may have sensed God's presence, God's love, God's calling on your life as he speaks to you and and encourages you to do that which maybe is outside of your comfort level. So Timothy is consecrated by God for the work that God has called him to do. Surrender, by the way, is the act of consecration. And the Holy Spirit is the power of consecration. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, remember that Jesus said, wait for power and the Holy Spirit would come upon you. Consecration isn't just working yourself up into an emotional frenzy or, or you know, feeling chill bumps up your spine or your hands getting all hot and sweaty. Obedience is the life of consecration in Romans chapter 6 verse 17. And joy is the outcome of consecration in Acts chapter 5 verse 41. Cleansing precedes consecration in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1. And Jesus himself is the secret of consecration in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. When you hear the word consecration, you should think surrender. God calls. That's what he does. You surrender. That's what you do. And so in verse 18, when he says, this charge I commit to you, son, Timothy. The word son here isn't like a cultural expression that an older person gives to a younger person. Here it means a tender designation. If I were to translate this, I think I would have translated it, my child. It's possessive. My child, Timothy. It's, It's a word that you would use to describe someone that includes the elements of fondness, affection, relationship. Intimacy. Why is all of that important? I think it's important because Timothy isn't simply a son in the faith. Paul's instructions are also based on Timothy's call, his consecration, and friendship 
and fellowship and intimate understanding of the apostles' teaching and the apostles' heart. A recipe for failure in any war is inadequate training for the troops. And Paul has poured his life into Timothy. You see, this wasn't just simply a person who was prayed over after church. Timothy's boot camp included all of his travels with Paul. And if you have one of those Bibles that gives you an index to maps, and if one of your maps is the journeys of Paul, you should look at them because in those journeys, as you, as you go through your map, I was thinking about this when I was... Uh, when I was preparing this message and, and you look at it and you, you look at Paul's third and fourth missionary journeys and you see him going from Tyre to Rhodes to Fair Havens to Malta to Syracuse to Regium to Pujoli to the three inns. He goes back around. You find him in Berea and Thessalonica, Amphipolis and Philippi. He's in Troas. He's in Miletus and Ephesus. And you back to Antioch, back to Derby. We're talking about hundreds of miles tramping in the dirt. And Timothy is with Paul as he's writing Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians, and Philemon. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Paul's famous passage on spiritual warfare is written to the Ephesians. Remember that book of Ephesians in your Bible? Paul wrote that book that has a whole chapter on spiritual warfare some three or four years before he writes this letter to Timothy. Why is that important for you? Because when you begin to understand the relationship between the books in the Bible and when they were written, you can piece together the puzzle. In what sense? Paul knows, believes, and understands that Timothy has already received the book of Ephesians and understands about spiritual warfare. In the famous passage, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 12 if you if you you know what since we're just thinking about it let's just turn there real quick in Ephesians chapter 6 in verses 10 through 12 Paul writes to the Ephesians finally my brethren be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities against powers against the rulers of darkness of this age against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand stand why is that important in our passage? It's important because Paul understands the enemy that we fight and the equipment that we wear in verses 13 through 17. And in case you've forgotten, Paul told the Ephesians not to give place to the devil in, ver in chapter 4, verse 27. Put on the armor for protection. Our armor, like our battle, is spiritual. It isn't against the government. It isn't against our husband or our wife. It isn't against our children. It isn't against what you might think. There's an invisible war that's taking place all around you. Pushing. 
And so Paul encourages to push back with what? Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation. Those are your tools. These great topics, truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation. Where do you find out about all of this stuff? In the Bible. And that's why we have Bible study. That's why we open up our Bible. That's why I encourage you that if the only Bible study you get is on Wednesday nights or on Sunday morning, the chances are you're going to be famished. Want to remain weak? Don't open your Bible for a week. Open your Bible. Timothy is in a battle for the hearts and the minds and the souls of the people that God had entrusted. You know what? The same is true for you. You're in a battle for the minds, the hearts, and the souls of the people that God's entrusted you with. Husbands and wives and children and grandchildren, friends and family. You see, there's a reason why God has placed them on your heart. To love them and care for them. And so you pray for opportunity. Timothy's in a battle. And so are we. We've all been given a charge in the fight. In war, by the way, there are those who fight the battle because they love to fight. And there are those in the battle who fight not because they love the battle, but they love the people that they've been charged to protect. You know, my son is a captain in the army. He doesn't like to fight, but he loves his country and he loves his family. And he's constantly thinking about his country and his family. You may not like confrontation, and you may not like war, and you may not like the battle. And, and you may think, I don't want to do this. But the truth is, this is a part of the charge that you've been given as a Christian, to fight the good fight. Why? Because we've been provided with the supplies that will ensure victory. Our fight is against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual one. We fight for the souls of men and women who are enslaved to Satan and sin. And so the Bible tells us that there are enemies of God. And so Paul will now turn his attention to the minister's weapons, faith, and a good conscience. At the end of verse 19, having faith and a good conscience... So what are the minister's weapons? Well, in part, the word of God. But now Paul is going to add faith and a good conscience. Now, before we get into this, let me just ask you a question. How important is sound doctrine? It's very important. It's critical. But right doctrine isn't enough. Paul won't divorce right teaching from right living. It's not enough that you have accurate and biblical information. It's important, critical that you have accurate and biblical information. But Paul is once again 
also talking about the internal condition of your own heart because you're going you're gonna to need something way more than just the right answers to the right questions. You're going to need the right power for right living. That includes the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of you, but it also includes the powerful reality of a clear conscience. So when Paul here says, having faith, what does he mean? Does he mean Catholic faith? Does he mean Protestant faith? Does he mean Presbyterian or Methodist? That's not the kind of faith that he's talking about. Here, he means the Christian faith, or what I often refer to as essential Christianity or biblical Christianity. Here, faith means trusting Jesus and trusting the word of God. We might think of this as faith in the Lord Jesus. So what does that mean? It means everything that that includes. It means everything that Jesus has said about himself. It means everything that the Bible has said about it. It means all of that and more. Our faith is the very foundation and the structure of our life. We cling to Jesus. So when he's here speaking of having faith, it's confidence in Jesus. It's confidence in everything that he's done. It's the sum and the substance of all of the instructions that have been given about Jesus. We cling to Jesus, his commands, his instructions. Jesus is our commander in chief. Our faith is the sum and the substance of everything that's been revealed in God's word and then explained by God's son. So what does Paul mean by a good conscience? In Paul's letters, he is going to use this word conscience often. He used it in verse 5, remember? Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience conscience. He repeats it here. He's going to repeat it again in chapter 3, verse 9, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. In chapter 4, verse 2, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. He's going to repeat it again in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Titus chapter 1, verse 15. Why all of this talk about the conscience? The word itself is very interesting. It actually has a Latin origin. For years I thought that it had a Greek origin. But the word translated conscience in our culture, in our society, in the, in the English language, it's two words, a prefix and a root word. Con, chins, or scientia. You know that word scientia. We get the word science or knowledge from it. And con means with, or next to. So the word conscience literally means with knowledge, or to know with, literally. Paul uses the word as the inward judge that bears witness to our actions. In Romans chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, in the context of the Gentiles who have the law, but who by nature do those things that are in the law, 
Paul writes, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness between themselves, their thoughts either accusing or excusing them in the day that God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel, unquote. I've told you many times that your conscience is a moral organ Let me explain. Your stomach is a physical organ. Your stomach is that part of your anatomy that says, feed me. Your stomach doesn't know what to eat. It just motivates you to eat. Your stomach will attempt to digest whatever you put down there. And your body doesn't always cooperate. It goes, you know what, Your, the stomach has said, feed me, but, it, but if you throw hot dogs and chili dogs and onions and jalapenos down there, who knows what's going to happen? There's going to be big trouble. Your stomach doesn't know what to eat. You have to make a decision. Your conscience is like that in this sense. It's a moral organ that tells you what to do. And I've used this illustration before. Your conscience is that part of you that goes, do what's right. Do the right thing. Do what's right. Do the right thing. The problem? Your conscience doesn't know what's right. It has to be informed from an outside source. That's why you can say to your family, your friends, or you can even say to yourself before you became a Christian, when your conscience said, you know, you should do what's right. And you go, this is right for me. Hey, you know, you know, you shouldn't be with that person. Who are you to tell me what to do? Hey, you know, you shouldn't do that. By the way, what happens if you ignore your conscience? Or disobey your conscience well it gets hard the conscience is conditioned or developed or defiled how is the conscience defiled by ignoring it or disobeying it Remember, the conscience is developed by outside sources. And so our conscience becomes, when we're very, very small, our conscience is informed by our moms, our dads, our aunts, our uncles, our brothers, sisters, grandmas, and grandpas, who is ever an important part of your life. They begin to tell you what's right and what's wrong and, and that you can't do this or you can't do that or you should do this and you should do that. A healthy conscience receives instruction from the word of God. How do you know something is right or how do you know something is wrong? The Bible tells us so. So a healthy conscience receives instruction from the Bible. If a person violates his or her conscience, what happens? It nags you. It pierces you. It motivates you to turn from from the offending behavior and to do what's right. And what happens if you don't? You feel remorse. You feel regret. You feel guilt. And what if you come to a place in your life where you go, no regrets. I don't want to have any regrets. 
I don't want to have any guilt. I don't want to feel bad about this anymore. Well, guess what? Your heart gets harder and harder and harder. Your conscience will no longer motivate you or direct you or guide you. You'll simply end almost every sentence with, I don't know, I don't care, I don't know, I don't care. The person whose conscience is hard will often repeat the words over and over again, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, and I don't care. The purpose of the conscience, remember, is to motivate the human being to do what's right. And we have this enormous capacity to rationalize our thoughts and our actions. And remember what a rationalization is. It's a plausible but untrue excuse of why we do what we do. And the hard heart can quickly turn into a seared conscience. Those with a seared conscience act in open rebellion and hostility towards God. Open rebellion and hostility towards his word. Open and rebellious hostility towards his people. We attempt to quiet our conscience and sometimes we wind up saying, our conscience going, do what's right. We can just be quiet. You need to do what's right. Shut up! And so... The conscience keeps talking. And so sometimes we put a blanket over it and we can hear the conscience going. Until you don't hear it anymore. It stops breathing. And sometimes we wind up killing it. And that leads to withdrawal and depression, despair, mental, emotional, distress. And since the work of the conscience in part, like the Holy Spirit, is to convict us of our sin, a hard heart and a, and a, and a seared conscience first runs away from sin and then denies sin and then ignores sin. You'll remember when the religious leaders brought the woman who was taken in adultery to Jesus, they asked him, well, what should we do? The law says we should stone her, and what do you say? Their hope was that he would say, well, by all means, obey the law. Let's just kill her right now. So that the rest of the people would say, man, Jesus is fairly harsh. Or that he would say, look, have some compassion and mercy. Let's just let her go. So they could accuse Jesus of being a lawbreaker. But but Jesus knew what was going on inside of their hearts. And the Bible says that he stooped into the ground and he began writing in the sand. And we're not told what he wrote. But some Bible scholars suggest that he started writing out their sins. Can you imagine if Jesus came into our midst and all of a sudden he puts up the name Gino? And he goes, 
And he starts the laundry list of everything that I've done. Every wicked, wrong, perverse, disgusting thing. And you're all horrified until he puts your name up there. And he starts writing what you've done. And then you start looking. And then Jesus looks up from the sand and he says, whichever one of you is without sin, let's let that person be the first person to throw the stone. And it's interesting in the Bible, in John's gospel, in chapter 8, verse, verse 9, it says, and they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the eldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman was standing in the midst, it says in chapter 8, verse 9. And then Jesus said to her, Where are your accusers? And she said, they've all gone. And he said, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. You see, God uses the conscience. Even absent the law of God. God uses the conscience even when you don't know anything in the Bible. Even if you've never been exposed to the Ten Commandments. When the Gentiles who have no law by nature do what the law demands, Paul writes in Romans that they're a law to themselves which show the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, either accusing them or excusing them. The conscience confirms the feelings and actions of others. Paul writes in Romans chapter 9, verse 1, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. So the conscience motivates a person to live the truth in simplicity and godly sincerity. It says, for our rejoicing in this testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in this world and more abundantly toward you in 2 Corinthians, conversation in that sense doesn't mean how you talk to each other, but the way in which you actually live your life one towards another. And so when Paul talks about faith and a good conscience, he's talking about maintaining right thinking and belief about the truth that's in the Bible. But when he speaks of the conscience, he's talking about right living in the way that you actually live your life. The conscience insists that you act honestly and that you renounce deceit. The conscience begs you. To open up your Bible, to read the Bible accurately, and to handle the Word of God graciously and appropriately and properly. The person with the hard heart, the person with the seared heart, has no problems twisting the Scripture or making them say what they never said. Thomas Walker in his commentary on the book of, or the Acts of the Apostles, lists several types of, of conscience. He talks about 
the good, clear, pure, healthy conscience, the conscience void of offense, the weak conscience, the seared conscience, the defiled conscience, the evil conscience. In Acts chapter 23, verse 1, it says, And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, this is the Sanhedrin, said, Men and brethren, I've lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Paul speaks of holding the mystery of faith with a pure conscience in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 9. I thank God whom I serve for my forefathers with a pure conscience that without ceasing I made remembrance of you in my prayers. Day and night, he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. And what is the conscience void of offense? Acts 26, 14. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. It was his way of saying... I have made every effort to make sure that when my conscience says something, that I'm sensitive and submissive to do what it's asking me to do. Paul speaks of the weak or sensitive conscience. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, speaking of people who offer sacrifices, he says, however, there's not in everyone that knowledge for some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol and their conscience being weak, it is defiled in verse 10. Elsewhere, he talks about that it's a bad idea to go against your conscience. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, he says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. And when he's writing those things, it's to to believers, not the unbeliever, the make-believer. You mean a person can have an evil conscience? Apparently. And so Paul is reminding the minister that if you are going to have an effective ministry, you can't just simply have the right doctrine. And trust me when I tell you, those of you who know me, you know that I want you to understand and know the truth. But Paul says, I want you to understand and know the truth and then I want you to do the truth in such a way that it's obvious and evident. And so then he gives the minister's warning. Do not compromise faith or conscience, which some having rejected concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck. Don't compromise God's word. Be careful with your conscience. It would appear that faith can be rejected and that the conscience can be compromised. So Paul uses the metaphor of a shipwreck. In the ancient world, remember, ships are subject to storms. They're subject to attack by pirates. They can go into shallow waters and hit things. So the expression having rejected is very, very important. Having faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected. The Greek word is apotheo. It's a strong word. It means to thrust away. In the middle voice, in the New Testament, it always means to push violently away from yourself. 
It's a strong word. The reason why I think it's a, it's a strong word, Paul is painting a picture to Timothy of someone who violently, aggressively, determined, pushes something away. In Greek literature, it was a word that was used both in a literal and a figurative sense to repel or to reject. And so some people can and do simply say, I don't care what the Bible says. Some people can and do push their conscience aside and their faith suffers shipwreck. Let me just be blunt. The metaphor, what happens when a ship becomes shipwreck? It's broken to pieces. It's destroyed. And that's what I think he's talking about. It's a warning. The conscience can be ignored. It can be defiled. It can be hardened. It can be seared or branded. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, it says, Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. The, the picture is a picture of push, putting something on, on sensitive flesh. But the moment that you put the branding iron on it, it burns the flesh and it forms a scar and it kills the nerve ending so it becomes insensitive. Some of you have those kinds of scars. You'll carry them with you for the rest of your life. That people push it, prod it, touch it, and you don't feel anything. So what is it exactly that's being rejected? Right teaching. Sound doctrine. A good conscience. There were people who said, I don't care what the Bible says. And I don't care what Paul says. And I don't care what you say. I only care about what I want Some haven't stood true to the charge, he said. So is it possible that a person can maintain right doctrine and find himself or herself slipping away into wrong living? And the answer is yes. And that's why Paul issues the warning. He sees those who abandon faith and conscience like a foolish sailor. William MacDonald writes, quote, Those who had made shipwreck the faith were true believers, but they simply didn't manifest a tender conscience. Their Christian life had started off like a gallant ship putting out to sea, but instead of returning to port with banners waving and full cargo, they found floundered on the rocks and brought shame on themselves and their testimony, unquote. You will not fight the good fight if you throw away the weapons that's been provided for you to safely engage in battle. Remember, your warfare is spiritual. This isn't about pushing and shoving and being weird or wicked to people. You have a Bible. You have sound doctrine and a good conscience. Well, what happens if you give up 
sound doctrine. What happens if you compromise your conscience? Well, guess what? You're not going to be able to fight the good fight. When we listen to the enemy instead of listening to the Lord, when are you most likely to compromise? Again, it's when you hear the voices of the people or the voices of your past or the voices of the people who are trying to persuade you about the things in the Bible? When are you most likely to compromise? When you allow God's enemies to become your friends? When you value what they favor more than God's favor? When are you likely to compromise? When you enter into a covenant with those who don't belong to the Lord? When are you most likely to compromise? When you're unequally yoked. Compromise corrupts. And so in verse 20 it says, Of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. He's going to illustrate the dangers of abandoning the faith in in a compromised conscience. He names names. Hymenaeus, Alexander. People get really angry with me when I name names of false teachers and false prophets who have a record, who have a record of going against what the Bible says, who have, who have a record of a compromised life. And it's a double whammy when you're dealing with a person who not only has false teaching, but false living. Imagine a person like Joseph Smith who claims to be a prophet and who claims to hear from God, who claims an angel, and then he creates a religious outlook that is completely opposite of what the Bible says and then gets a new revelation that he has been given permission by God not only to have a wife, but to have everybody else's wife. God's told me that you can leave your wife and now you can be my wife. How can you not see that this isn't divine revelation? This is lust disguised as religion. Why does Paul feel it necessary to expose and rebuke the false teachers? Is he a heresy hunter? Is he a twice-dead Pharisee who has nothing better to do than pick on people who disagree with him? That's what some people would have you believe. But it's simply not true. Paul is warning Timothy of two people who might prove to be Instead of peacemakers, troublemakers in Ephesus. He mentions these men by name again in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. What do we know? In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17, it says, And their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort. Who having strayed concerning the truth. Saying that the resurrection has already passed. And they overthrow the faith of some. What is he saying? He's saying that one of these people were teaching a doctrine that you and I. Well maybe me more than you. Know as preterism. 
You may not know what preterism is, but it's the idea that all of the prophecies in the Bible have already come true. And there's a person living in the first century who said, you know, Jesus rose from the dead, but guess what? There is no future resurrection. Just like we sang, I believe in the resurrection. I believe in a future resurrection. I believe what God said in Jesus concerning I'm the resurrection and the life. And he that believeth in me, even if he were dead, Jesus said, guess what? I'm going to bring you back to life literally. And Alexander said, that's not true. Why do you say that? Because dead people don't come back to life. But Jesus said that dead people do come back to life. False teachers aren't just simply disagreeing. They're not harmless people who have a difference of opinion. They're dangerous. If Hymenaeus taught that the resurrection has already passed, it must minimum mean that there is no future resurrection. Alexander's probably the coppersmith who opposed Paul and did much evil against Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. And Paul disciplines them. Why? Because they continued to reject the guidance of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus and their own conscience. I want you to think about this for just a moment. They reject what Jesus says. They reject their own conscience. And so Paul says, I have to put them out of the fellowship so that they don't turn people away from the faith. Paul may have exercised some form of church discipline. He gives a graphic statement. I delivered them to Satan or handed them over to Satan that they may not learn to blaspheme. What in the world does that mean? Does that mean he roped them up and he took them out and met a guy in a red suit with horns and a pitchfork? I don't think that that's what it means. I think what it means is that Paul is communicating with Timothy what Timothy knew, that the congregation of the saints and the fellowship of Christians together, that when we gather together, when we sing together, when we pray together, when we encourage one another, guess what? We're a community of grace and mercy, of God's presence and the presence of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. And when you're outside of that community, you're in the world and The world is of Satan. He's handing them over. MacArthur says, quote, they're no longer in the environment of God's blessing, but they're under Satan's control, unquote. But the point of the discipline is to maintain, in part, purity and power in the church and then to bring about repentance and restoration of the offending part. There's a reason why when people get kicked out of the church, it's to preserve the purity and the power of the church, but it's also to create a mechanism where real people will go, you know what? I miss church. I miss worship. I miss the word. I miss the fellowship of the saints. I miss Grace and mercy and peace and goodness in my life. Because guess what? It's not out there. It's in here. It always shocks me and surprises me when someone says, I don't need the church and I don't need to be with those people. Well, what is it about those people that bug you so much? You know, they're singing praises to Jesus and 
praying for one another, encouraging one another, loving one another, experiencing grace and mercy with one another. Paul says, I'm handing them over. Clearly, blasphemy in this sense includes anything that misrepresents God or Christ or the gospel. And so when he says, I delivered them to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. I I need you to think about this for, for a moment. This discipline is supposed to be miserable. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to put a, per, a person in a position where they go, I miss the light. I miss the love. I miss grace. I miss mercy. I miss peace. I don't want to cry myself to sleep at night. I don't want this. To, I don't want the darkness and the emptiness and the hurt and the bitterness and the loneliness. I want something more. What is it that you want? I want what Jesus offers in His gospel. Is it hard putting somebody out? Yes. That's the price for purity and power in the church. But church discipline was never, ever, ever meant to kick somebody out so that they stay out. But to include them back in friendship and fellowship. The false teachers were willing to ignore the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of Paul, the teachings of the apostles. But I want you to think about this. They're not just simply ignoring Jesus and ignoring the apostles. They're also ignoring their own conscience. But is it possible to recover the ship and its cargo? I'm going to suggest to you that we can be patient and even kind with false teachers and false teaching. But there's a reason we can't allow them to infiltrate and infect the saints with false teaching and false living. You know what my job is? In part to guide, but in part to guard. It's really, really important to me that you hear the truth and that you love the truth. And so we put on our spiritual armor. If we are going to love the truth and know the truth and walk in the truth, then we have to wage spiritual warfare against Satan, against sin, against unbelief. That looks like prayer and walking in purity and walking in love. There's a reason why the Bible says walk in the light. There's a reason why the Bible says walk carefully, walk in harmony. Because when it comes time to fight, you have to be prepared to fight. The flesh is weak and the enemy is strong. In the FBI, when we have to go out on a difficult situation, the supervising agent says, gear up. We have to take the gear that is going to be necessary in order to do the job that we're tasked to do. 
And that's what Paul means when he says, put on the spiritual armor. Gear up. Reread Ephesians chapter 6. Become familiar with its content. Begin to understand God's truth, personal righteousness, God's peace, the walk of faith. Remembering that Satan is the source of unbelief, of doubt. Satan questions God's word. And then he denies God's word. But the shield of faith keeps us away from the enemy's fiery darts. The, army, the, the, the armor serves as our protection. But the spirit of God and prayer and the word of God, those are our weapons for attacking Satan's stronghold and defeating the enemy. Remember, remember, remember. Our weapon is the word of God. It is that two-edged sword that brings life and power and that no matter how often you use it, it will never grow dull. It will always stay sharp. And so... There's difficult times. There's a fight. And like I said right at the beginning of the service, some of you are in a fight for your life. And if ever there was a time to fight the good fight, keep the faith, maintain a clear conscience, it's now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, for those people who are fighting, holding on to their health, holding on to their marriage, holding on to a job, holding on to the future. Lord, I pray that you would help us, that you would speak to our hearts and that you would remind us of what it is that you've called us to do. That we're to glorify you to worship you, that we're to encourage one another and minister to one another, pray for one another, support one another, encourage one another. Lord, we pray that we would want to act in a way that's honoring and pleasing. Lord, we wouldn't be content to just simply know all of the right things, but that we would want to be men and women who live in a right way that brings about peace and joy and grace and mercy. And so that when the fight comes, we can wage the battle in a way that honors and pleases you, that the enemy would be defeated and that we would experience victory in the life that you called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Oh,